the politics and the policies of Obamacare are at the top of the news again, and a worthy topic for this week's The Big Story podcast. One month into the Trump administration, the Republicans are realizing that votes to repeal the law are a whole lot easier than coming up with a plan to replace it. And the longer they wait, the more anxious their constituents become. I'm David Hawkins, senior editor at CQ Roll Call, and with me in the studio are political reporter Simone Pathé and healthcare reporter Aaron Mershon. Simone, we'll start with you. What is your sense for how uh, the constituents are expressing their anger, and how is it going for the Republicans out in the uh, out in the public libraries and cafeterias and high school gymnasiums so far? So it's been a rough couple weeks for Republicans out in their districts. It looks like it will continue to be, um, depending on how many of them hold town halls next week during their district work week. What's been so surprising to me is that a lot of the Republicans who are having some of the rowdiest town halls are in really safe Republican districts. Um, Tennessee's Diane Black had an episode last week. There are people who have cancer that have that coverage, that have to have that coverage to make sure they don't die. And you want to take away this coverage and have nothing to replace it with. So what, how can I trust you to do anything that's in our interest? Donald Trump won her district by nearly 50 points. So these are not swing districts where you have Democrats trying to come in and necessarily target vulnerable members ahead of 2018. Are these uh, protests that, we, that we've seen on TV and that we've are they organically arising or are they uh, are they being um, orchestrated or produced by some new uh, antagonistic group? So that's the big question, right? Republicans will tell you that these are paid protesters. These are Bernie bros who have been bussed in. And yes, there is a Democratic organization here called Indivisible. It's founded by a group of former Democratic Hill staffers to try to um, really rile up a lot of the disaffected Democrats after the 2016 election and channel some of their disappointment into action at the congressional level. We just know anecdotally some of these voters who have showed up have actually been Trump voters who have said that, you know, they supported the Republican congressman, but they're concerned they might have a pre-existing condition. Um, they don't want to be thrown off their health care plan. But from the Republicans I've talked to so far, no one yet has done any extensive polling about who these people actually are. Republicans will continue to tell you that it's not a problem. But until we know whether their own voters are showing up disgruntled, it's kind of hard to say. And Aaron, uh, I, I know health care is one of the most complicated topics uh, that there is. It's whatever it is, a sixth or a seventh of the nation's economy. But as far as you can tell, what are the voters most anxious about? And this sort of is a semi-political question that goes to the policy. How is it possible uh, that Republicans thought they were on such solid ground when they were uh, out of power and really had no way to get away with repealing Obamacare? They voted something like three dozen different times to repeal it all, entirely or in part. Now suddenly they realize that's not such a good idea, and, it's, and the voters seem to be realizing it wasn't such a good idea either. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to the voters that it's a pretty basic and pretty visceral concern. They are concerned about losing their access to health care, and a lot of them see that access stemming from the health care law. So they were sort of feel that they've been given something, and they're very, very worried about any effort to take that away. I think, as Simone mentioned, there are a lot of fears over whether um, they'll, those folks who do have pre-existing conditions will still be able to get coverage in the way that they have been able to since the health law was passed. 
The health law also has a lot of protections for folks who access preventive care, things like mammograms, birth control. That's all covered because of the health care law. And I know folks are very worried about suddenly those not being covered. Another really popular provision that I think is coming up is related to lifetime and annual coverage limits. Before the health care law, if an insurer said, you know, you've spent too much money this year, we're just capping your coverage, that was completely legal. Now it hasn't been legal since the health care law passed, and I know folks are worried about suddenly that changing. So let me ask you this. Those, were all, those are all the so-called goodies that I think most, most people in the public like. I continue to have a hard time sort of committing to memory the answer to the following question, which I know you'll have, which is why can't they just keep the good stuff and get rid of the stuff that the public doesn't like, the exchanges, the buying on the exchanges, the, uh, the, the notion that you – have to buy insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what's why can't they just keep what people like and get rid of the stuff they don't like? I don't know that the exchanges are unpopular. I think in general, people are, people are okay with the idea of going to a place to buy their insurance. I think what is really, really unpopular about Obamacare, um, and you see this in polling even now, is the mandate that you have to buy health care insurance. People do not want the government telling them what they have to buy. Basically comes down to the way insurance markets work. Essentially, you have a whole bunch of healthy people and a whole bunch of sick people all paying in. The idea is that the money coming in from the healthy people that they're not spending during the year is helping to offset the costs of the sick people. So to really make that work, you need a market where a lot of healthy people are buying in and a lot of sick people are buying in, which is essentially the justification for that unpopular individual mandate. If, for example, you take away the individual mandate and only force folks to buy insurance if they really need it, then you're going to get a whole lot of sick people buying in, not a whole lot of healthy people, and the costs are going to go up for those sick people. You could also go back to a time before the the healthcare law when, you know, insurers were allowed to kick people off their coverage with pre-existing conditions. That essentially achieves the same thing. You keep the sick people out of the pool, and therefore the costs don't go up for the folks who sort of remain in the pool. Gotcha. And with each passing day... Uh, my sense is the, the voters' ambivalence towards a replacement is coupled with don't repeal it until you figure out how to replace it, uh, and that the longer the Republicans remain internally at odds with one another over how to replace it, the likelier it is that they'll never replace it. Is that what either of you are picking up? I think that's certainly the anxiety you're seeing. I mean, if you recall, Republicans have won congressional elections basically since 2010 on this concern about really a a philosophical opposition to a government mandate, you know, the government occupying too much of a role in your life. You're starting to see, and this happened at the Republican retreat a couple weeks ago, Republican um, pollster Frank Luntz, for example, came in and and told the, the caucus to start talking about a repair, not necessarily a replacement. You're seeing a shift in language there. They know that repair, it might be a little bit more tenable, certainly across the aisle. At the same time, this week, you're seeing resistance from conservatives, the House Freedom Caucus. They're getting anxious. They have a base to please here when it comes to repealing it outright, whether or not there's a replacement plan on the table. Aaron, do you see um, the Republicans getting any closer to having a an actual legislation to put out there to pair with the to to repair it or replace it? Yeah, I think that's a complicated question. I mean, in some ways, yes, I think at least on the House side, which has really taken the lead on this effort, you do see some coalescing around sort of very vague ideas, um, especially in the last week or so. I think there's been a little bit more serious talk about 
exactly what will and won't be in this package. All that said, however, sort of some major caveats. There's no details. No one is willing to talk about details in in any sort of real way. No one's even really willing to say when they might have those details. And I think the very important caveat also is that on the Senate side, where I think this really gets sort of down to brass tacks, they're not talking about this at all. They're very focused on confirmations and a Supreme Court nomination. And, and frankly, I think they have a much heavier lift in the Senate. So the fact that they're not talking about it gives me some great pause on that. And this is no surprise to anyone, as we've as we've sort of all been saying around the table this morning. Uh, this law has been uh, on the Republican hit list since it, soon after its enactment. Uh, that's going on six years now. They've talked about replacing it. They have never once come up. Well, I guess they've never once voted on anything to replace. There have been some ideas. Dr. Price, the new Secretary of, uh, of Health and Human Services, former Georgia congressman, did have legislation that had some a little bit of momentum, but then was taken off the table. So they're, even though they've had six years to get to prepare for this moment when they would finally be in charge and be able to replace it, the fact that they don't have a plan ready, uh, at least suggests to me, as somebody who's ignorant of all the policy details, that they may never have a plan that can get through Congress. It's tough to say. I think you're right. They do have ideas. There are, there's sort of a, a cafeteria-style buffet of different ideas Republicans have, in general, all been talking about for the last six years. Bits and pieces of broad outlines of things that they might be able to do, a way to sort of deal with the pre-existing condition question without having an individual mandate, for example. They have an idea on that. There is a policy idea out there. But the specifics of it, exactly who it would and wouldn't affect, how it would affect insurers, how it would affect patients, how it would affect hospitals, those sorts of things that really matter, the details you need to spell out, those are scary details because you do start to see who will and won't be helped, who will and won't be hurt. And they've been reluctant to put those details forward. And I think still they are very reluctant to put those details forward. And Simone, do you think that the uh, your your understanding of where the electorate's head is at collectively in the country, uh, is there a way politically for the Republicans to and for President Trump to essentially back away from this in the next year and say, we really can't figure out how to replace it? <laughs> I think that would be political suicide for a party that has really staked their ground here for, as we've said, the past six years on getting rid of this law. Now, if they're able to come up with some sort of repair, whatever they want to call it, or replacement, you know, Donald Trump has talked very vaguely about insurance for everyone. No one knows what that means, including House Republicans. So if they are going to walk away from this, they need to do it in a way that is subtle and nuanced and is not just giving up on what's been their main political goal. So along those lines, Simone, I was uh, I actually looked at the roster of town halls around the country next week and amazingly was only able to find 10 Republican lawmakers that are going to have public, widely attended forums, traditional town hall meetings. Uh, many of them are doing these so-called teletown halls, these giant conference calls where thousands of people can listen in but only a handful can ask questions. Other members are having office hours, but the traditional town hall meeting that's kind of a, a bedrock of lowercase d democracy, hardly happening at all. Why do you think that might be? Yeah, so optics obviously are huge in all of this. Everyone fears in any situation the campaign commercial that could come down in two years where you have an angry constituent yelling at you 
and you don't have a good answer, especially if you don't have a ready-made replacement plan. So you're increasingly hearing Republican consultants encouraging members to hold teletown halls. These are obviously much easier to structure. You can control the questions coming in. You can do them via Facebook Live, very low production cost here. That doesn't mean that Republican leadership is necessarily discouraging them. I mean, you have campaign folks at the NRCC, for example, the National Republican Congressional Committee telling their members, you need to be out there. You know, that is good publicity, too. Don't lock the doors, keep people coming in. So it depends which side of things you're on. But certainly looks like there are fewer town halls planned than there would be under normal circumstances. And they're out of town next week. And then they come back for, I think, five or six uh, weeks after the President's Day week that they're in recess. Aaron, do you see, uh, is there any sort of legislative moment on the horizon that our listeners should be uh, paying attention to that might signal uh, that a deal is at hand or that they're going to do something legislatively? I think so. I mean, I think at least in the House, the two key committees with jurisdiction over this, the Ways and Means Committee and the Energy and Commerce Committee, are promising that they will hold markups, or at least starting to make that promise a little bit more publicly, that they will hold markups on this issue after the President's Day recess. Probably not that first week, but at least soon. All that said, though, I do think these town halls could really make a difference on that. I think, you know, if if they go home and they're met with a lot of angry constituents, I'm not sure that that timeline would hold up. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, first voice was that of Simone Pathé, political rep- reporter at Roll Call. Second voice, that of Aaron Mershon, healthcare reporter for CQ. I'm David Hawkins, senior editor at CQ Roll Call. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. <laughs>